today. Well, welcome to Modern Mad Men. We've got Caitlin here today for some reason. We let her come back. Um, and we're sitting today with somebody with a ton of wisdom. We're sitting here with Carney. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. And so we, we talked a little bit before the podcast, but will you tell me a little bit about your name? So I asked you, is your name Carney? And then you said there's history to this. Yeah, you asked about my name. And the last name is shortened version of a big, long descriptive name, the last name that you may have seen. But the first name, Carney, uh, it's an interesting tale because as Comanches, I guess you could say after allotments, after the reservation was broken up in southwest Oklahoma, but that was, you know, before Oklahoma became a state. I think President McKinley signed most of the documents. But what I want to share is that name is unique because as you had the the rounds of allotments given out to the original allottees, then eventually homesteads were given out to non-native people. So it's kind of like checkerboard lands. So a neighbor to my paternal grandfather, they were good friends because they all farmed. They they raised horses. They raised chickens just in that rural area of Paradise Valley. Okay. So when my father was born, and they had a big family that they were such good friends, a white rancher and my paternal grandfather, that when my father was born, the white rancher gave my grandfather a quarter horse in remembrance of the birth of this son. So That's cool. as a result, they named my father Carney Coffee. So it was a white rancher named Carney. His last name was Coffee, like a drink. So it's an unusual pairing of the Anglo name with the Comanche name of Solpita. But the much larger name is It's a historical name. That's cool. So since they're about 10 miles long in descriptions, they cut it down to about two words. So you hear the name Solpiti, but it's really pronounced Solpitan. Sol means many in Nemic language. Pitan means they came. So just those two words mean many came. But it's a part of the much longer word that the historical ancestor was at where that name came from. That's amazing. That's the exact opposite of my name. My name has probably no meaning. <laughs> it's very boring. It's just Logan. <laughs> it, it may have if you look deep enough. Yeah, I'd have to really dig. It's probably not a great meaning. But you're, you're with the Comanche National Museum. I've had the pleasure of being there since 2012 when we embarked on honoring the Comanche co-talkers of World War II. And with no hesitation, I uh, was invited by the former director. And it allowed me to be a part of something that I wanted to experience because these men were finally honored. And President George Bush signed the law in 2008. It was called the Comanche Choctaw Co-Talker Bill. Choctaws for World War One, the Comanches for World War Two, and two of the seventeen men that were recruited by the United States Army from December of 1940 through the end of the war, they did serve in three regiments in Europe. They created a code at Fort Benning, Georgia, mid 1941. They already had their code completed, but they were being, um, I guess, saved for Utah Beach, the Normandy invasion, which they had no idea. They were just being trained and trained and overtrained. And Michael said, we were just wanting to get into action. But eventually, that was their call to go to Europe. But it allowed me to go there and be a part of something pretty special, because by then, all the co-talkers had passed away. And just the families really began to enjoy the recognition that they had sought for their people, because uh, the Comanches uh, did their part. They came back from Europe. But the United States Army, I think, was different from the Marine Corps because the Comanche Nomic language that was utilized in service was not declassified until 1968. 
So until the Comanches were honored, the three survivors in 1989 at the state capitol by the French government, then I think people began to ask, who were these Comanches? So I just enjoy the fact that uh, that it came, and it would have been so nice it had some been living, but they were older men by the time that honor came. So we relished the opportunity to honor these men at our Comanche Museum. And I only came there as a consultant, and I'm still there almost seven years, approaching seven years. That's awesome. It's been, and it has been, and it is an enjoyable ride. So you're, you're somebody, obviously, we talk, we've been working with you guys for a long time. And um, every time we talk about, you know, who knows what's going on or who to talk to, everybody always points to you. How, how did you get into this position? You're, you're kind of the, well, the consultant. I was very lucky. Uh, the one uncle that was with the 8th Regiment that were the first to storm ashore at Utah Beach, he was a radio man for a son of President uh, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. He was the oldest general of any of the five beaches to have led men. And they were the first to encounter German forces. Now, that uncle passed away around 1965 when I was a little boy. Uh, I only know him through my father and other relatives. But the other uncle that was the last co-talker named Charles Chibitty, he lived to be in his mid-80s, and he married a native lady from Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he lived. But on occasion, he would come back to southwest Oklahoma. But because as you get older, like I'm doing, you begin to appreciate the older people you have, especially my father. I'm biased, of course, but my father, Carney Sr., was the most fluent Comanche. And uh, even though it's like over a decade since he's been gone, it's hard to talk about him because it's a, it's a person you truly miss. Mm. Man. So... The impact y- of a father. Yeah. I think that's something that getting the honor and privilege to learn from y'all the last seven years is something that I think that we don't do a great job of is the respect and the honor of elders. Well, I think all cultures, all people, as they mature, as they move along in life, life and death are elements in the world we live in. Hmm. But as you grow older like I did, you begin to appreciate what you have left. Hmm. So bringing Uncle Charles into play is the fact that because they were so close, growing up in Paradise Valley, which is northwest of Lawton, Oklahoma, that anytime you're together with relatives and you have stories of each other growing up, I was not only rich in family stories, but also in the history of what Uncle Charles talked about Mm. as we visited with him oftentimes in Tulsa, Oklahoma at his residence. That really added to my life. And little did I know some of that came into play when we honored these men. in 2000, really in 2013, when they got their Congressional Medal of Honor, and then when the exhibit, I think, was beyond a year. So I've just really enjoyed it, even after that, because people have always asked about these Comanches once they find out about them. And are you, are you guys the only place that people can really get this information? Well, um, there was a manuscript prepared in the mid-'90s when three were living. Uh, they were wonderful men. Um, knew who they were and they were the survivors in a way and I believe each one looked at the manuscript prepared by Dr. Meadows and is probably at your library about the Comanche co-talkers because they were actually a signal corps with the 4th Infantry Division so actually were chosen they were selected and they trained and created their own code at Fort Benning 
and it was down 16 months ahead of the Navajos in the Pacific. But there were not as many. I believe there were over 400 Navajos at different phases of training throughout the Pacific until that ended. But the Comanches served uh, in three regiments in Europe from Utah Beach to the end of the war in Germany. But the tales at times would come out from my Uncle Charles, real ones. Okay. That's what I really relished. So I tried to uh, put that in presentations at our museum, even though it's more 20th century. Uh, like all veterans that served in that great conflict in two theaters of operation, they're all heroes to me. Because in both instances, they beat back a tremendous force that the world might have been very different for a short time. And America was a big part of it. And our, our Comanches, no matter who they were, whether they were co-talkers or not, they wanted to do their part. In the Pacific, I had four uncles, uh, two that were in Aleutians, one in New Guinea, one that was 1st Marine Division. From Peleliu through the invasion of Okinawa, from Australia, they embarked. He was born in 1917, but I had four in Europe. Two were co-talkers, one was a Browning automatic rifleman in Europe, and another uncle was in Italy, and they all came back alive. That's incredible. That's Just incredible. like you had relatives, grandfathers, great-grandfathers. You know, they were, they were a generation that gave and contributed to make sure that the tide turned in favor of, of a world that you wanted, hmm. not the opposite. Yep. So I like it that Native people, uh, I think one time Uncle Charles asked, was asked by someone, how could you serve in the United States military for all that has been done to Native people? Now, that's a generalized statement because me, I can only speak for a Comanche. I can't speak for any of the 570-some-odd tribes in America that are fairly yeah. recognized. But he would say that I looked at it as a chance to serve. He said, I felt there was something I could contribute meaningful. In this way, the United States Army was looking for a way to communicate without it being taken by the opposite side. So Uncle Charles said, I jumped at the opportunity because I wanted to serve this country that I live in. Because he said, this is the only country, me as a Comanche, that I have ever known. Mm. So he said, you would expect that I would want to fight for it. Yeah. So that ended the debate right there. I was just about to ask you that. Yeah. I was going to ask you that exact same question. Yeah. Like, how could you... He had his own way of expressing because he said, as far as Comanches were concerned, this is the only home we've ever known. Yeah. So he said, of course I'm going to fight for it. That's, I mean, that's... So a, that ended it right there. Yeah, yeah which, is a, which one is amazing. And it's the level of, I mean, care and foresight and integrity behind that is is fascinating and i think it's amazing that you guys um do such a good job storytelling and making sure that these stories and this culture continues yeah an uncle of mine that was a commitment in the late 70s he retired from tinker air base in 1974 after raising a family in oklahoma city they moved back to his home area of apache oklahoma a lot of comanche allotments throughout comanche county cotton county tillman county southern part of kiowa county and, of course, Southern Cattle County, where I grew up. And I liked that uncle in particular because he was like my father. He was a tremendous historian of the band that he came from. And what I enjoyed is that he tried very hard to relate his language, his songs, his customs to the next generation. And I, I really uh, miss those type of men because some you lose sooner than you think. 
and some that you're lucky enough to be around them for as long as they're allowed to be here. So that's why I, I tried to present some of these experiences or some of these contacts I've had with relatives and other Comanches that are known for their history in a proper light in our museum. Only the truth we try to hmm. make sure that it's done in the proper way. Yeah. Because the history of Comanches is not just recent. It's not just the 20th century. Comanches, as the historical name is known, goes back centuries. And it has a connection to other brethren tribes through language. That's the richest for me as I get older. That's amazing. It's just totally different from what, you know, I feel like we grew up in. And I mean, just, okay, here's a question. And this might sure. be an unfair question. You don't have to answer it. But what do you feel like is something, a misconception that people um, have about um, Native Americans or that something that you guys get to educate people who aren't a part of a tribe as they come into the museum? Well, I always enjoy it because it's done innocently, and it doesn't happen a lot because most people are attuned to being, in a way, appropriate in today's English language. Now, we're using English language, English words, but we also have Comanche words that you have to try to translate in the best possible fit. Uh, at times you'll have visitors from out of state because we have many people throughout the United States and the world visit our museum. And I always enjoy that there's a chance to learn. And some catch themselves because it's been used uh, just because it's been done. But I try to bring out that we are a, we are Comanche people, the historical name. I try to educate them as far as the language you have, because even though it's an unwritten language, Comanche language has grammar. It has nouns, pronouns, adverbs, adjectives, homonyms, synonyms. It has everything the English language has, but it has not been written. Only recent attempts have been have been trying to create an alphabet to help the young people that do not know the language, the sounds, how to pronounce, how to gain a vocabulary, how to start putting sentences together. But the, the thing about Comanche language, it's, it's a way of describing, but trying to put it to the visitor that has never been around it yeah. to make sure they know what is meant by what you're saying. Because there was a nice, nice elderly lady coming there with her family and never been to Lawton, I don't think, before, trying to find us. And she came up to the front area because we rotate up front greeting people. And she said, sir, can you help me? I said, sure. I said, what can I do for you? And she looked across at the desk and said, I'm looking for the Indian Museum. I said, all right. Do you mean the one in Bombay or Calcutta? And she caught herself. She said, no, no, I mean the Native American Museum. I said, that's more appropriate. Now, that's hilarious to me because that has its origin a long time ago yeah. in the Latin language. And I believe it has come from the fact that Columbus was looking for the East Indies, thinking that all the native people on this side of the world <laughs> were from India mm. is, a, is a misconception, or really is not a correct term, but it's been accepted in American life for so long. So really, I, don't, I try to stay away from that word myself. Yeah. I try to tell people who I am. Because in the Numic language, when you say the word Numa or Num, the shortened version, we contract words in some instances, but the word num or nama 
when you put it in English, means a human being or singularly a person. If you put the na on the end of the word nama, nama na, it pluralizes it, which makes it plural for the word people. Mm. That's really what we call ourselves. But the historical name is really what we go by, or has we've always been known as Comanche which is really given to us in 1706 by the historical record by the Spanish authorities. Because at one time, this was New Spain. There was no United States here yet. And the Spanish couldn't control Comanches. We went where we wanted to go. We did what we wanted to do. And we were the barrier for so many people for so long until we were overtaken by people too numerous than us. And we had to adjust to a new way of life. Man, I think I think the the ability and the burden that you guys have to continue the story in this culture, for, I think, is is beautiful. And I know Caitlin's gotten to be a part of that a little bit from the um, kind of PR social media side. But how how is that for you guys? How has social media been a benefit for you guys being able to tell your story? Well, you know, it's something I've gotten used to uh, with the former director and the dynamic people that have been at that museum and that have gone through there they're so well versed in today's communication items phones all these devices that growing up i I never was around Hmm. and i guess i'm used to them in a way but uh, that's not a part of what (laughs) what are priority for me as i'm getting older but you have to know a little bit about how they work but I think in today's world, it's much important, much more important to have these as opposed to maybe 30 years ago. And yeah. that's been a lot of help because that's how information is spread. It just seems like split second. It's very fast. And you can, Scary fast. And you can communicate person to person mm-hmm. or mass communication, I guess. And that's what your page is. So it's just something that has really uh, uh, <laughs> made me happy because people learn from what we what we honestly try to portray exactly the way that possibly the way life was how it's been described and who the individuals were and some of them were my relatives when anthropologists visited in 1933 what they had to say of the old way of Comanche life I've really appreciated too the amount of care that y'all take into every word that you put out because a lot of people especially in today's time it's fast Let's just get information out quick, but you care so much about what you put out. Well, I, I, I'm enjoying it because the uncle that was in Italy, the one named Francis Satakin, he was one of the many children of a northern chief, the most eloquent one from the Medellin's Peace Treaty named Tin Bears. And what I, I like about it, what has finally come about because we are able to do it, is in his time as a committeeman, and really 40 years ago, he dreamt of a museum, but it was not possible back then. But nothing could be done until you're able to make strides as a Comanche government to make sure that the resources you have are going to your priorities. And then if you have more come in, that you can afford more things. So the kindness of Comanche people in terms of this modern government we have have allowed us to operate a museum. And I like it because the museum on behalf of Comanche people, it produces and at the last count, it is still the most tribally awarded museum in the state of Oklahoma, what these young people have built. What an honor. Mm-hmm. And Design Works has been a big part of it. 
and I just uh, always enjoy the fact that when there's something that I consider that I can learn from, uh, I always try to contact them. In terms of the Facebook, uh, things they do for us to make sure it's done correctly, to make sure that we put the best effort forth because we represent not just the museum, uh, to the people that come into the museum, to the people that call, to the people that inquire, we represent Comanche people. And our people have grown in terms of number over decades. So our numbers are getting healthier because the real culprit in that transition time from the old way of life was not necessarily in the old west wars. It was disease. Mm. My understanding, it decimated Comanche populations by over 90%. Wow. So when our tribal leaders asked us to be peaceful, from 1875 forward, and Quanah Parker was our last chief, to participate in a new way of life because you could not go to the old way of life that it once was. It was not possible. Mm. So I like it that a decision was made on behalf of families, on behalf of the children that were there, that you had to embark on something new to survive. And at the head count, not the ascent, not the first census, or any any census uh, that were censuses that were taken afterward. In 1875, the initial head count, out of the five bands that remained, there were only 1,597 Comanches left in the world. That's what we've rebounded from. Wow. How long ago was that? 1875. Wow. That's when it was a reservation. It was not Oklahoma yet. Oklahoma did not gain statehood until 1907. So I owe it all to the resilience of the ancestors of mine that had to make the adjustment and survive with the help of caring people. With the permission of Quanah Parker, our last chief, missionaries were allowed to come to the Comanche Reservation, different denominations, to allow the next generation to learn of American ways, Hmm. English, schooling, what it took to learn about how to not just make a living, but how to exist and how to cook. Missionary schools sprung up. Boarding schools eventually sprung up to educate the next round of Comanche uh, generations. So that's what they had to endure. So I appreciate that a lot because it's allowed me to have a wonderful life in the time frame that I'm living. I don't think I've ever, I mean, you've been around this for dealing with their, or working with their page and all that, but I don't think I've ever heard that perspective of like that, that period of having to make the decision to adjust to a new way. Because when, when you're at such a low number and you're overtaken simply because the old way of life could not be, could not be had, your policy in terms of the people that were overtaken by United States government policy they direct anything that comes down to you the way you're going to live. And because we did not know the American way of life, there was a period that you had to learn and adjust. That's why at the time they were considered wards of the government. They had to be looked after because mm. the American life way of life, they had no idea of what to do. They had to learn. They had to learn a new language. They had to learn a new way of living. Strange. It's, it's, it had to be strange. It's wild and it's beautiful. But all policy for Native Americans came from Washington D.C. Native policy. 
That's where the Indian agent came into play. He oversaw the activities that were going to be productive in making a new way for Native people. Now, I'm talking about Comanches. Of course, it applied probably to everywhere else. But anything they saw that was detrimental for the producing of American way of life for Comanche people, uh, they would intervene. Now, that's your, the old Department of War, Department of the Interior, the Bureau of Indian Affairs eventually, that you have all these people that have oversight of making this adjustment to the American way of life possible. Mm. <laughs> and you could talk about that topic probably all week long. I could listen to you talk about this stuff all week long for sure. Yeah, I know you only have like five or ten minutes before you have to go. That's fine. Um, but I, I would like to hear, so for the people listening that have never been to the museum and that they need to go, what, what can they expect when they show up there? Well, since I've been there, they've been very wonderful people in selecting the topic that is going to be forthcoming. It's done ahead of time. It's done with excitement. It's done with looking for the right way to present it so that you can learn from it, but also recognize it's a part of our experience. And I believe in the past, it has been probably about two to three exhibits a year. And it's always done in the fall when we have our Comanche Fair. It's always opening with a new exhibit, kicking off the Comanche Fair in late September. But what they'll find is the area dealing with history is fascinating. But the one gallery in the back always changes. And there's one that I'm really happy with is the one that I had a remark from uh, a visitor about how it was done because it has relevance for our history. In that transition period, most Comanches were peaceful. We're talking about 1875 Ford starting a new way of life. The one that overtook us, Ronald McKenzie, he built the 10 most prominent Comanche chiefs' homes in that area around Fort Sill. But there were some considered so hostile they were sent to Florida. Mm. And it was headed by a man that created the Carlisle. It was at the old barracks in Pennsylvania, the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, where he sought to take the native person out of him to make him an American, to take that identity out. Mm. And that was really the the forerunner of the boarding school, the U.S. boarding school system, to educate this next generation. The reason I bring it up is because of what has been built there over the last decade. These likenesses of these Comanches imprisoned at Fort Marion, Florida, they've only been at the Peabody Museum. And because of what has been built here in Lawton, Oklahoma, this is the first time they've lent these items to any tribal museum. And it's something to see and to ponder about the fact that these Comanches, for whatever reason, were taken to a different place to be re-educated in terms of that thinking of that time period, but yet none of the charges against them were ever proven. But they were allowed to come back to the old Comanche reservation. I've seen the exhibit, and it's incredible and haunting. And that's on right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is the current exhibit. Also, shameless plug for anyone out there wanting just more information about the Comanches in general, you can follow the Facebook page. They have a huge following, 65,000 people follow. They reach Updated all the time. Updated. We post every day, um, except on the weekend. So Monday through Friday, you get a new post. Um. 
with information that you really could not find anywhere else. Yep. And they reach 95,000 people per month, which is crazy. Yep. So they do a really good job with that page and you can learn so, so much from that Facebook page. So y'all should be super proud of that. See, my, yes, my career was not in the museum field, but we've been lucky enough that they've developed a good rapport with Texas Tech. I think some of the young workers in years past have come through. Our exhibits are A number one because of people that have the knowledge and the know-how to do things correctly. Mm-hmm. That's what you do professionally. That was not in my field, but coming here as a consultant has allowed me to learn and to enjoy this field that I've been to museums and enjoyed what I've seen, but it's a lot of work to put something together. It takes planning. It takes effort. It takes research. Those are things I appreciate from these young people that have come through this museum that I've seen. And it's hard to believe I'm there almost seven years, but I'm enjoying the ride. How long has the museum been opened? It opens its door. It opened its doors, I was told, I believe, in 2007. Okay. After they hired an executive director, and they had a museum board at the time. And I really enjoyed her company because she came from a different federal agency, Bureau of Land Management, but she was a well-educated professional lady that knew how to organize. And that really just uh, really just uh, kind of knocked me for a loop because you want your people to come back to your tribe and contribute. And she did it in a most meaningful way. And you could tell by the legacy she left and what has been produced, not only when she was there and the staff that she hired, but what continues to be produced on behalf of Comanche people. Because we never had that lecture before of a museum until that time period. And like I always say, it's always the kindness of Comanche people because every year, by line item vote, they approve whatever they whatever they have in a budget. It's up to them to approve monies for that particular effort. They approve monies for the use of whatever they whatever they want. It's the kindness of the voter that allows us to continue to exist. And you'll have an amazing place. You'll have it, and so if you have not been there, please go check it out. They have an amazing gift shop as well, um, where you can get uh, shirts. And I mean, I think the website's going to launch soon. Will that you'll be able to buy online as well? Yes, Tribal Leadership moved it from its prior location about a half a year ago to the museum. So uh, a lot of people had to make an adjustment, but because of the convenience of the many visitors that come here throughout the yep. military graduations at Fort Sill or even the world visitors come there they like the idea that we have a gift shop now so i'm hoping they'll even do better yeah i i i know we got to roll but i i appreciate so much your time and hopefully we can do this again because i could listen to you talk about this well this all day uh if you're ready to say goodbye are, are you fixing to say i'm finished um i, I can go longer but I, I thought you had to leave around now okay if you're gonna wrap it up say this in numic language oh no oh no Two syllables. I'm not. I'm not very smart, so you got to go slow okay. with me. <laughs> Say the word, civet. Civet. That means I'm done. Civet. 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 And that just means I'm done. Civet. 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 I like that. Civet. Don't forget it. Suvet. Correct. Suvet. Suvet. Now I'm getting in my own head. <laughs> no, you're saying it right. Okay. Thank you so thank you so much for your time. It's it's been a blessing Anytime. to to Anytime. get to I've learn from it. you.
I have enjoyed the experience. We'll do it again. We'll come to you sometime. We'll do, we'll set up in the museum and, oh, yeah. and we'll do one there. We we could talk about topics two weeks long. We could sit up all <laughs> night and talk. That's what my dad and I used to do. How about you and Sammy? How about you and Sammy can be a problem together? Uh, I bet y'all could talk all day. I don't know, I'd probably have fun with him. Yeah. He's got a good name, Sammy. Yeah. He didn't own the pizza place up in Oklahoma City, did he? Sammy's Pizza? Oh, he probably opened it. Is he out there? No. <laughs> oh, he's a good guy. He's a great guy. He is. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Sue that. <laughs>